Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. It's wrong to tell a lie. Lying is a sin. But sometimes it seems like you have no other choice. Sometimes we lie because it seems to be the lesser of two evils. It seems as if you have to sometimes do a little bit of wrong in order to head off or prevent a greater wrong. We have to choose the lesser of two evils. And it seems in Joshua 2 that we have an example of exactly this kind of thing going on. Because as we'll see, when the spies are sent into Canaan, their lives are saved by a lie. Rahab brings about the deliverance of the spies by means of deception. Now, just as Moses had sent spies across to scout the land, now Joshua sends spies as well. We begin our text with that in verse 1. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And Jericho was this mighty fortress city that sits just across the river. So you might think of Jericho as, as the key to this land of promise. It's the great obstacle that stands in the way of the people. So Joshua sends spies. And the spies go into the city. They lodge in the home of a prostitute, Rahab, but their presence is immediately discovered and men are sent to grab them, to, to capture them. And Rahab protects those men by deceiving those who pursue them. They went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in, the order of the, on the, laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gotten out, had gone out. So lying is wrong, as I said. Lying is actually one of the big ones. The ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Because of that and because of the witness of Scripture throughout Scripture about the, the evil of lying, theologians look at the ninth commandment and they interpret it very broadly as a broad protection of the sanctity of truth, the sanctity of truth in, in all sorts of different ways. It's a testimony to the sanctity of truth in a general sense. Most theologians would say that it's never right to say anything that does not correspond with fact. And the way that Christians have traditionally interpreted the Ninth Commandment is that, that it's always wrong to tell a lie. It's always wrong to say something that isn't actually true. This was the view of Augustine. 
This was the view of Calvin. It's also the logic behind my favorite story about Athanasius. Um, you can imagine there are plenty. But, but my favorite story about Athanasius, who didn't write the Athanasian Creed, but it does reflect his orthodox views. Athanasius was a bishop in Alexandria, but he was out of favor with the emperor, so the emperor sent troops to arrest him. So he got on a boat and he fled up the Nile. And the soldiers got on a boat and they chased after him, and, and their boat was faster than Athanasius's boat, and they were about to overtake him. The two boats were on the water, and Athanasius was at the back of the ship looking at the soldiers, and as they came forward, one of the soldiers called out to him and said, Hey, we're looking for Bishop Athanasius. Have you seen him? And Athanasius, who knew the Ninth Commandment very well, said, Yes, he's actually right ahead of you, and if you hurry, you can take him. <laughs> the soldiers were excited. They began to row more quickly. They overtook the boat, and they, they traveled up the Nile more quickly in pursuit, and Athanasius discreetly docked his boat and went another way. <laughs> He escaped, but he did it without telling a lie. Strictly speaking, everything he said was true. And I love the cleverness of that, the idea that you could actually even escape your pursuers without having to violate the commandments. But then you look at the story of Rahab. And Rahab doesn't tell the truth artfully. She lies. She says, the men aren't here. It's true, they, they came here, but they've left. And if you hurry, you could catch them. When all the while, they're hidden on the roof. She's not uh, bending the truth. She's lying to these people who've come. She's not being honest with them. She's saying things that do not correspond with fact. And clearly, that's a violation of the Ninth Commandment. She ought to be punished for it. And the Bible rewards her. She's not condemned for this. We don't come down saying, don't be a liar like Rahab the prostitute. No, Rahab is listed in Hebrews 11 as a hero of the faith. Hebrews 11.31 says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Unless you think that it was, it was friendly welcome and not lying, that was being spoken of here, James actually uses Rahab's actions as an example in his argument about the way that our actions justify us in the sense that they flow from faith. So he says in James 2, verse 25, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So her act of concealment her act of protecting these men was a result of a faith that saves her. How can you lie? How can you break the commandments and become a hero of the faith? It doesn't make any sense. It seems as if that must be a contradiction. A contradiction. It presents a kind of dilemma. And if you read up on this topic in various theologians, you'll see they tend to take two sides. Uh, some practical-minded people will say something along these lines. This is just one of those cases where the ends justify the means. We all know it would be nice if everybody could live perfect lives, if you could get through life without lying, without cheating, without stealing, 
But this is the real world we live in. It's a fallen world, and sometimes you have to do bad things in the service of the good. And this is just one of those examples. Sure, what she did was wrong, but sometimes you have to be willing to get your hands dirty in order to fight for what is good. And if you had asked me how to interpret this dilemma a year ago, that would have been my answer. I would have said it, it's, it's wrong to lie, but uh, sometimes you just have to. This morning, I might answer it a little bit differently. We'll see why in a moment. So there are some who say the ends justify the means. There are some who say, not really. Um, what Rahab did was wrong, and God rewarded her in spite of the wrong. In other words, they acknowledge the sinfulness of the lie and argue that it wasn't the lying that led to the reward. It's not because she lied that she's a hero of the faith. It's the other stuff surrounding it. The lie itself was bad. It would have been better if she had been clever enough, like Athanasius, to think of a way to tell the truth and, and get away with it. But, you know, sometimes you don't and, and, and you trip up. It's wrong. But uh, God rewarded her anyway. To update the dilemma, the way philosophers or ethicists might uh, pose it would be something along these lines. Is it okay to lie to the Nazis? Right? Imagining a World War II situation, uh, the Jews are being hunted and you've hidden them. Is it okay when the Nazis come to your door looking for those people to lie to them in order to save those lives? Or, as a Christian, are you kind of stuck on the horns of, the, of a dilemma because it's wrong to lie and you have to say, well, I was hoping to avoid having to turn these people over, but now that you've asked me a direct question, I cannot tell a lie. Sure enough, here they are. Which is right? Which should we choose? Now, this is a hypothetical in, in philosophical or ethical conversations, but actually for people in this room, for their ancestors, it wasn't a hypothetical. We have people in this room whose grandparents were faced with this very dilemma. If you want to hear about people hiding Jews during World War II, talk to Renata or, or talk to Josh Sinkraven in the back. They had grandparents who actually faced this choice, and they chose to lie to the Nazis. Now, as I said earlier, the way that I would have answered a question like this if you had asked me a year ago, so I would have said, it's wrong to lie, but sometimes you have to lie in order to achieve the greater good. But I would have really tried to steer clear from, from saying the words, the ends justify the means, because that comes from Machiavelli, and pastors shouldn't give Machiavellian advice. So I would have tried to find a pious way of, of saying it, but it would have amounted to the same thing. Uh, but something changed over the, the last year. Someone recommended some reading to me, and I'm going to recommend it to you. This is a, a massive book by the theologian John Frame called The Doctrine of the Christian Life, which is this exhaustive look at Christian ethics. And towards the end of the book, he takes up this very question, is it always necessary to tell the truth? Is it, is it ever justified to tell a lie, as Rahab does here? He looks at the traditional arguments that I said earlier, Augustine held to and Calvin, and he says there's something not being taken into consideration in the way that these questions have usually been addressed. And as a result, we run into these ethical issues where we imagine that we have tragic moral choices, like no good option. Like Whatever we do, it's going to be wrong. So we just have to do the least wrong thing. And Frame argues that whenever you find yourself 
dealing with these, these tragic moral choices. It's not because they're real. It's because there's something in Scripture you failed to appreciate or understand. And in this case, he says, we need to go back to the ninth commandment and really understand what that commandment is saying. There's a nuance that we're neglecting. Now, to understand what he's saying, think about the sixth commandment in the King James Bible, thou shalt not kill. And yet, the same God who says thou shalt not kill also authorizes you to kill in certain circumstances. Uh, capital punishment, for example, just war. The God who says thou shalt not kill sometimes thinks it's okay for you to kill. Now, you may look at that and think, wow, God didn't realize how contradictory he was being. The reality is we've just failed to understand the, the, the phraseology. So in the ESV, which we use here, you'd see you shall not uh, murder. You shouldn't kill unjustly is the idea. You shouldn't kill uh, when you shouldn't. Let's put it that way. So Frame argues that the ninth commandment has a similar uh, nuance or context. Thou shalt not, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. He argues it's really important to think about the last part of that command that has to do with your neighbor. There are many passages in Scripture that condemn lying, but there are also a number of instances where deception is employed and not condemned. There are even instances in Scripture where God himself is said to deceive. So what do we do with these things? Either God himself is violating his own commandments, or we need to understand his commandments a little bit differently. Frame says that what all of these passages in Scripture that, that use deception, that don't condemn deception, what they have in common is this. Uh, they justify deception in certain cases that have to do with the promotion of justice against the wicked, especially those who seek innocent life. So Frame says that in cases where innocent life is being sought, the Bible does show deception being justified. So according to him, Rahab is not choosing the lesser of two evils. Rahab is choosing the good. She's choosing the good by protecting innocent life by the means that are given to her. And that's the way he would argue it. In fact, Frame would go even farther and say that as Christians, we have a moral obligation to protect that innocent life to stop the wicked who seek to take it. He would argue you have a moral obligation to lie to the Nazis. Now, whether you side with that traditional view or you're inclined to think maybe there's something to Frame's view, I'm going to suggest to you that the most important thing in the story of Rahab is not her deception. The most important thing in the story is actually her truth-telling. It's her truth-telling that we ought to remember Rahab for, not her deception. Because the most powerful act in Rahab's story is the truth that she tells. Now listen to what she says to the spies, her explanation for what she's done. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, 
to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the earth beneath. Now, when James says that her action of hiding the spies justifies her, you can see that this action flows from a faith. It flows from an understanding. At the end of what we just read, she says these words, the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This is a confession of faith. She's acknowledging the power of the God of Israel. And it's out of that power, out of that acknowledgement that her, her siding with the spies flows. But she hides the men and asks a promise of them. She wants something in return. What she asks for is salvation. She asks that she and her family be spared. And she wants not just the, the promise, but she also wants what she calls a sure sign of the promise as well. She asks them for a promise and a sign of the promise. Now then, she says, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. She asks for a promise. She asks for a sign. They answer by making the promise to her. They will deal kindly with her and faithfully to her. They speak in almost covenantal language. If you look at the way that that covenants are made, the obligations that are undertaken by those who make the promise and those who receive it. This has the, the spirit of a covenant promise being made. And we often talk about the sacraments as a sign, as a sure sign. They function in the same way to confirm a promise, to signify the truth of that promise. So Rahab lowers them to safety. She lets them out through the window by a rope, They're able to escape, and they give her a sign, a sure sign, and it's an interesting one. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. She said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she went away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. The sure sign of the promise of deliverance that they've given her is this scarlet cord. It's interesting to see the correspondence between the means of their salvation and the sign 
that promises her salvation. She has saved these men by tying a rope and letting them down the window. And now she has been told that if you will tie this scarlet cord to the window, it will serve as a sure sign. This red cord hanging from the window, when we see it, it signifies the salvation of all who are within. That should remind you of something. That should remind you of an earlier story, right? Passover. At the Passover, if you were within the house where the blood was on the doorposts, you were spared. And if you were outside that house, all bets were off. It was the blood on the doorpost that saved. It was the scarlet cord hanging from the window that was the sure sign of salvation. It signified that cord. Hope you appreciated the prop. <laughs> so then the end of the story, the spies go back to Joshua. They make their report, and it is completely different from what happened 40 years ago. The spirit of this report is, is totally different. Things have changed completely. 40 years ago, the spies came back terrified of what they had seen, and now the spies come back to report they're the ones who were scared. We saw the inhabitants, inhabitants of the land terrified of us. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Another test of Joshua's leadership, another success. The report of these spies is encouraging. God is working already across the Jordan. It's interesting to see that the part of the story of Rahab that we remember most easily is not the most important part of the story. What we remember about Rahab is that she hid the spies, that she lied in order to protect their lives, which is true. But the thing that's easy to forget is this unlikely confession of faith that this woman made when these two men appeared. Rahab sided with the weak against the strong. She herself was one of the weak. We're told that she was a prostitute. She lived uh, on the wall, literally in the wall. And to live in that part of the city between the inner and outer walls suggests you live in the poor part of town, in a poor district. So she was definitely one of the have-nots. And now these two uh, weak, powerless people come to her to have their lives hidden and if you're wondering how weak were these spies, well, they're relying on Rahab to save them. Like, she has more power in this situation than they do. And yet, she lives in Jericho, where there's a powerful king, there are powerful soldiers, there are mighty, impregnable walls, and she lives inside the city. She lives in the wall. She has reason to know the strength of the walls because she sees it firsthand every day. And two men show up out of the blue and say, oh, we're coming to invade the land and we're going to be conquering this city that, that you live in. It's an improbable thing for her to put faith in. It's an improbable story for her to trust. The easy thing to do 
would be when the king comes knocking at your door to say, oh, there they are, to side with the strong against the weak, but that's not what she does. Calvin is astonished when he thinks about the story of Rahab. He says, Rahab is dwelling with her people in a fortified city, and yet she commits her life to her terrified guests, just as if they had already gained possession of the land. She turned her back on the powerful to protect the weak, believing that one day it is the weak who will be strong. That's faith. She acted in faith. And her faith was not formed out of ignorance. Ironically, it was formed from a knowledge of covenant history. She tells them the story of Israel as it is recorded in the land. She says, we're terrified of you people because we know what your God has done for you. We've heard about the parting of the Red Sea. We've looked across the river and seen the kings that you've defeated there that we talked about last time. We've seen it. We've heard it. We know because of the faithfulness of your God to you up to now, we know enough to fear. I know, she says, that he has given you the land. Now, a psalmist, if he wants to reassure the people of Israel that they ought to have faith in the promises of God, will do exactly what Rahab does here. He will recount the history of the people. He will remind them of the deliverances of the past and say, If God led you out of Egypt, if he parted the Red Sea, if he did all these things, then you can trust him to do the things he's promised that have not yet taken place. You can trust him because he's proven himself before. She knows the history and she believes it. She believes in the power of this God. The interesting thing is, I mean, it's stirring at the end of the story, when the spies return to Joshua, and unlike the spies, 40 years before, give this stirring report. The Lord has given us the land. It's great. I mean, these are men of faith, these spies. They're not daunted by the obstacles. They've seen the walls. They've been pursued. But they're not afraid. They're men of faith. But their confession of faith is actually borrowed. Because the words that they speak to Joshua are the words that Rahab spoke to them. She's the one that told them the truth of these things. They say, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. But she'd already told them, I know that the Lord has given you the land. It's as if her faith gives them faith. Her belief, despite their weakness, strengthens them in their own belief. And that's a remarkable thing, but there's something more remarkable than that. It's remarkable enough that she hears and she believes. She hears what God has done and she believes in him. But even more remarkable is that when she sees this God who keeps his promises, she has the faith to believe that those promises could be for her as well as them. She believes that the God of Israel could be her God too, that she too could be included, that the coming of Joshua could be good news for her not just for them, that she too could be one of the chosen people. In this sense, this story of a Canaanite woman who has faith in the covenant promises and aligns herself with the people of God, this is foreshadowing. I said when we began this look at Joshua that we wouldn't just look at it as history, but we would look at it as history 
that has sign value, that points to future realities. And here we see one of those things. This is a great hero of the faith in Hebrews 11, but she doesn't start off as one of the Israelites. She starts off as one of their enemies. The promise wasn't given to her and to her parents and to her brothers and sisters, but it is now. And that's a pretty remarkable thing for her to have had faith in, because that's a mystery. The inclusion of the Gentiles in God's plan, that's a mystery, not to be revealed until the coming of Christ. And yet already, through faith, she can trust in it, and she can walk on it. It's interesting to see what God does with her. We think, wow, God really used this this great woman, this hero of the faith, to preserve these two spies. What a remarkable thing God did through her faith. But to be honest with you, if those spies had been killed, Joshua had more spies. He could have sent more. It wasn't that big a deal. God did something much greater through Rahab than save two men from death. Uh, He saved his people from their sins. Because Rahab (laughs) is one of the ones through whom Christ came. Not only is she saved, in Joshua 6, all that is promised comes to pass. I don't want to spoil this for those of you who don't know yet, but the walls of Jericho, not as solid as people thought. We'll get to that in Joshua 6. All you need to know for now is all these promises are kept. Rahab and her family are spared. But more than that, Rahab goes on to live a life with the people of Israel. She finds a husband. His name is, uh, I don't know if you would say Salmon or Salmon. I hope Salmon. Salmon, she marries him. They have a little boy. They name him Boaz. Boaz, who will later marry Ruth, will be the great kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth. But that's not the greatest thing, because Boaz is another sign. He foresignifies Christ to come. In Matthew's gospel, if you look at chapter 1, and you read through the genealogy, you see who was begat by who, and then who begat who, and who begat who after that. It's interesting, all of the the begetting and the begatting, you you typically will go from like father to father, or I'm sorry, father to son, that's how that works. Uh, Not in this case, though. In this case, Matthew sort of slides sideways and mentions Rahab by name and lets you know that it was through her line that Christ came. This woman who had the faith to believe that that Joshua, this conqueror, could be coming for her as well, that the promise could be fulfilled for her as well, it was through her that Christ came and fulfilled the promise that was made to us. God did so much through this woman of faith hadn't been born into it, but had heard and had had the faith to believe that these people could be her people too. The the ethical dilemma that is posed by Rahab's deception is interesting to ponder. We scratched the surface this morning, but there's a lot more you could read on that. But I think the reality represented by her truth-telling is something greater. As the gospel comes to us through the words of Paul in Ephesians 2, 
we are a lot like Rahab. We are alienated. We are children of wrath, Paul says. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Rahab starts off as an enemy. Inside the enemy camp, the enemy fortress, and ends up a daughter of God. And she receives a sure sign to accompany the promise, just as we do. Uh, the sign that she received, the, the scarlet cord, it signified a salvation that had already taken place. But it also looked forward to a salvation to come. I think the significance of the color is obvious. Our scarlet cord isn't a rope hung from a window. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. And our sure signs that we have in the sacraments, they point to, they signify the cross of Christ, the work that Christ has done for us to assure us a sign that is given to us even before we are in him. Paul says in Romans 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. When the gospel comes to us, it finds us where it found Rahab. And it looks to us the way those spies must have looked to her. The gospel seems weak. It seems weak and unlikely because we're surrounded by great walls and, and surrounded by strong powers all of which tell us this has no hope. There is no way that this puny, insignificant, and unlikely message could possibly overturn the foundations of the world. It could never happen. The gospel promises big things brought about by seemingly impossible means. It seems fragile. And those of us who believe in it feel that we have to guard it somehow and protect it so that it, it, it doesn't uh, wither away. But that weak thing isn't just weak. It calls us to turn against the strong. The gospel in its weakness calls us to side with the weak against the strong, to stand apart from the power that surrounds us, that rules over our city and over our heart to turn against the forces that decide what is good and evil, that tell us what is true and what is false. The gospel calls us to do something that's very hard to imagine doing, very difficult to imagine. How can you trust in such weakness against such strength? You can only do it if, like Rahab, you believe that God will deliver on his promises to save. 
You can only do it if, like Rahab, you trust in the scarlet cord of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You can only do it if, like Rahab, you can say, I know that the Lord has given you the land. The deception we've talked about in the story is Rahab's. But there's a bigger deception in the story. It's the deception that allowed all the people in the city who knew what she knew to go on believing what they believed. She didn't have more information. She hadn't heard more stories than they had. It was the same. She wasn't more fearful than they were. They were fearful too. All their hearts had melted. All of them quaked in their boots. The difference wasn't that. The difference was that she saw truly and did not deceive herself into believing that despite all that we've heard about the God of Israel, despite all of the great things he's done, the gates of Jericho will prevail against him. She couldn't believe that. She believed in God instead. The gospel often finds us behind our walls, deceiving ourselves, telling ourselves these gates will hold, telling ourselves there's no way that weakness can overturn the strength upon which we have built our lives. But we're fooling ourselves because the God who promised to overturn that stronghold overturned it and says the gates of hell itself cannot prevail against him. The same deception that overtook the people in Jericho is something we have to deal with ourselves. We have no choice but to answer it by trusting in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.